try that again. Good morning. That's better. I was afraid to do it too loud at first. Um, with this nice hot weather, how many of you have been drinking a little more water than usual? That's a good thing. I have too. I've discovered something though. All those nice bottles of water take up an awful lot of space in my recycle bin. So I've started to crush them. Good, good girl. Um, they take up a whole lot less space when they're crushed. And then the other day, I was drinking water, and I went to crush the bottle, and it didn't crush. And I thought, hmm, that's weird, because it always crushes when I crush the bottle. And I discovered why. And it made me think about the scripture today, and about fear, and about faith. So, I have my handy-dandy little glove here I'm going to put on, because my glove says... Beer. Okay. And I have two bottles, which are going to represent us. Okay. So fear comes along to the first person here and says, I'm going to make you afraid. You have things to worry about. You should be afraid. And fear crushes that person. But then it comes to this person over here says, you have a lot of things to be afraid of, too. Look at that storm. Look at those bills. Look at that problem that's in your life. I'm going to crush you. But it's not crushing. But this one crushed right away. Why won't this one crush? It's the same brand. And then I thought about it. This one's full of faith. It's got prayer to cap it off, and it's full of faith. And when we're full of faith, no matter how much fear we have, it might shake us a little bit, it might bump us around a little bit, but when we have faith, it's not going to crush us because God has promised that. So next time, make sure you crush your bottles to put them in the recycle bin. But remember, when you go to try to crush it and it doesn't crush, remember Filled with faith, fear can't crush us. No matter how hard it tries, that faith is going to keep coming through. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you that you are a faithful God, that you fill us with faith, that we can be strong and have courage and know that no matter what comes our way, if our faith is hooked securely in you, Nothing can crush us. So we thank you for that. And we ask you to help us be full of faith so that when the fears come, when the doubts arise, when those storms come, we know that we have faith in you and we will withstand the storm. We give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. Lord, thank you that with you we do not need to fear. Thank you that you have all authority. Please help us to meet you afresh in the words from your scripture today. In Jesus' name, amen. Can I ask you guys a question? How do you know when someone has authority? 
Okay, when they take it, that's interesting. Tone of voice, what's that? Okay, when you listen to them, what do you mean? Okay, when they follow, when you follow what they say, they're having authority over you. So, title, okay. Respect. A uniform or badge, what? Or or gun. Pay. Okay. So those are lots of different uh, ways. I was thinking about when I um, started training as a chaplain, I had to do four kind of like semesters of training to get certified as a chaplain. And in the first one, I was just coming out of having kind of painfully lost a job at a different church. And um, I was feeling pretty much entirely undermined. And in one of our teaching sessions, before we went out onto the hospital floors to practice meeting with patients, our instructor, our supervisor, asked us where we get our pastoral authority from. And I thought, I have absolutely no idea. I don't think I have any. I didn't feel like I had any anymore because I felt like my previous church had taken away whatever level of it I had. And I realized when I was going into patients' rooms, I was kind of depending on them to give me the authority to be there. But that's not actually how chaplaincy works. It's not how being a pastor works. It's not how a lot of things that require authority work. And more recently, I've actually been working with another, with a chaplain, um, and I have asked her the same question, and we've kind of been, over the last few months, we've been wrestling with the concept of authority versus the concept of control. They're not actually the same thing, unless you're Cartman from South Park, and you demand that everybody respect your authority. Um, I didn't want to play that video in church. I don't think it's appropriate. But um, <laughs> but there, there is this idea in the world that authority can be demanded and it can be um, imposed and it can be threatening, but that is not actually authority. True authority is something that is within a person and it, ultimately, true authority comes from God. And here's the thing. God is not, much as we might think he would be, God is not controlling. He doesn't need to control because he has ultimate authority. He doesn't have to make anybody do anything because he already has authority. Many people in positions of authority don't actually have authority. There were some verses in, um, at the end of chapter 7, which was the chapter we looked at where Jesus talks about the narrow way and the wide way and the, um, and the house on the rock and the house on the sand and all those things. And at the very end, Matthew tells us, where Jesus, when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. The teachers of the law were the Pharisees, maybe the Sadducees. The, they're often called in the Bible and many translations. They're the scribes and Pharisees. Um, they knew the Bible 
really well, backwards and forwards. They had spent tons of time debating it and talking about the interpretations. And, and so they were the people that appeared to be in authority until everybody heard Jesus. And then they realized this guy actually knows what he's talking about. And there's something in him that demands respect that we, like, he's not doing anything to us to make us do what he wants, but there's something compelling about what he's saying. He has authority. So Matthew has been taking his first century Jewish readers and us meticulously step by step on a path to showing us who the Messiah, the anointed one of God promised in the prophets in the Old Testament, who that Messiah is. And first he kind of outlines that Jesus is the fulfillment of prophecy. Particularly, he fulfills the um, covenant with Abraham. He fulfills the, God told Moses there was going to be another prophet like him. Jesus is the prophet that's like Moses. Um, and he also is in the line of David. He uh, fulfills the prophecies about the line of David. And we'll see, we saw last week and we're going to continue to see, that Matthew will keep hinting at Old Testament prophecies to kind of keep that in front of us. Don't forget, this is the Jewish Messiah here. But he's also, within the last couple chapters, pretty much from the end of chapter 7, um, he has been showing us that this Messiah has true authority. And so first he shows us that the Messiah has authority of the word of God and over the word of God. He has authority to teach the word. He has authority to heal. That was last week. We saw the centurion who said, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one go and he goes and that one come and he comes. I say to my servant, do this and he does it. This actually is a, re a really great description of authority. The centurion understands the concept really well. The person with authority is obeyed because of who they are, not because they take extreme measures to enforce it, not because they could beat you up, but because of who they are. And so he's kind of saying to Jesus, Jesus, your authority is so far beyond any authority that I exercise or any authority that I obey that, first of all, I don't deserve to have you come to my house, even though you're a homeless Jewish rabbi. But I also know that you can issue a command to my servant's illness from here, and that illness will have to obey you. So this week we're going to see that Jesus also has authority over nature over spiritual, spiritual powers of evil, and over death. So I don't usually pause to let us do this, but I'm going to ask you to um, take your Bibles out from the pew in front of you or the ones that you brought with you and turn to our passage today, Matthew 8. Um, we started in verse 23. I'm just going to give you a quick summary of what's happening. You're, you're probably familiar with these stories, uh, but before we pull it apart and look at it, um, I'm just going to give you a summary. So Jesus gets in a boat with his disciples. There's a storm. Jesus is snoozing. The disciples are freaking out. 
They wake Jesus up. Jesus calms the storm. And then they end up in this place called the Gadarenes and meet two men possessed by demon and the or demons. And Jesus casts out the demons, casts them into a, a herd of pigs. The pigs run down the hill into the ocean or into the sea and drown. And all the townspeople say, Jesus, you're scary. Get out of here. We don't want to. We don't want to deal. So, um, so that's the summary of the story. Okay, so now we're going to pick it apart a little and look at it. Let's back up to verses 18 to 22, which we talked about last week already. Don't worry, I'm not crazy. There's a reason for this. When Jesus saw the crowd around him, he gave orders to cross to the other side of the lake. So, he's last week he's on his way to this week's stories, He's getting ready. He's like, you can just kind of picture him one foot in the boat. He's just been waiting this whole week for us to get to this part. Um, but he gets held up. First, he gets held up by a teacher of the law. So a teacher of the law, we already know, is one of these people who has been in authority over all the people that Jesus is teaching. But he doesn't actually have the authority that Jesus has. We just saw that from uh, chapter 7. And this teacher of the law says, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. So we kind of have to wonder a little bit why he was offering this. Um, maybe since he is a person who has had some power over the people, but he's realizing that everybody thinks, oh, Jesus, Jesus has authority, not like our teachers of the law. So maybe he is trying to get authority vicariously. He is trying to sort of get authority by association. Jesus says to him, Foxes have dens and birds have nest, nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. D.A. Carson says, Jesus may have less shelter than the beasts and birds of nature, yet he is nature's master, and we're going to see that in a minute. This Bible scholar, this teacher of the law, was more interested in the perks of comfort and control that can come with perceived authority than he was interested in the true authority of the Son of God. Of course, he doesn't know he's the Son of God necessarily yet, but he, he realizes, okay, this guy has authority, but it's not giving him the payoff that I'm looking for if I have power and authority and control. So we don't hear about him again. And then immediately after that, it says another disciple comes up to Jesus. So this is kind of interesting. We have to keep in mind that the 12 disciples that we know about that are famous were not the only disciples of Jesus, not the only people following Jesus. It sounds like this guy had been following Jesus for a while because he wouldn't be called a disciple. So he's probably heard the whole Sermon on the Mount. He's probably seen a bunch of the miracles. And he says, first, basically, I'm gonna, I'll follow you, sure. But first, let me go bury my father. This is what a person does who wants to benefit from Jesus' authority on their own terms. So it's kind of like, it's almost like I, I see that you have authority. I want to benefit from it. I would like to have authority over the authority. I want to have this magician in my back pocket. I want to have this genie that, I can, that can grant me my wishes. I, I, want to, I want to be the one in control here, though. Hold off on any demands that you have on my life until I take care of the stuff that I want to take care of. And, but I'll, I'll keep you on the hook to bail me out if I need it. Jesus says, 
This is pretty, pretty striking. Jesus says, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. That doesn't sound particularly sympathetic. Um, maybe this guy's father had actually died, or as, as Barb said, maybe he was just kind of saying, I'll follow you, but later, my dad's not dead yet, but I'll, I'll follow you after he does. Um, but Jesus' point is, this is a life and death decision. It's me or not me, and Jesus is the author of life. So apart from him, Basically, dead. Jesus gets in. So then, Jesus gets into the boat with his disciples. We don't actually know how many of the 12 disciples are on this boat. We don't know if he's called them yet. We're going to talk about that in a couple weeks. But at least, there's at least the four disciples who are professional fishermen. They get on the boat, and the storm blows up. And this is apparently not that unusual in the Sea of Galilee. So probably um, Peter, Andrew, James, and John are familiar with handling a boat on a storm in the Sea of Galilee. But they are completely freaked out by this storm. Why? Okay, so last week we said that when the gospel writers are telling a story, chronological order, or the order in which things actually happened in real life doesn't matter it doesn't matter until it does matter so last week we saw that the the healing miracles that we looked at Matthew ordered them in a specific way to make a specific point and other gospel writers put them in a different order because they're making other points about the same events Um, but in this story both Matthew and Luke tell the story about the storm on the sea, and then immediately follow it by Jesus and the disciples ending up in this Gentile region in a graveyard with a demon-possessed person or people. And I never noticed this until I was reading a book by Beth Moore recently called Jesus the One and Only, and she said the demons may have anticipated Christ's coming. Even my most conservative commentaries entertained the idea that the storm on the way could have been an attempt by the kingdom of darkness to discourage Christ's arrival. I read a bunch of commentaries about this. I didn't see any commentaries suggest this. Hers is the only one that did. But when I read it, I got the chills. And I was like, yeah, these two gospel writers would not have put these two things in the same order necessarily unless it mattered because those two stories belong together. So, if the demons anticipated that Jesus was going to show up in the Gadarenes and do something there, and they didn't want him to, and so they're the ones who blew up this giant crazy storm, that brings up another question. Why? What were they so what was such a big deal about what Jesus was going to do here? So this is where we need to think about what it is that Jesus is doing that Matthew has been consistently bringing out in his gospel, which is every expression of Jesus' true inherent authority is another encroachment of the kingdom of heaven into empire. <laughs> 
this whole gospel is about kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven versus empire. Our human um, kind of grabby, power hungry, just utilitarian. Um, we're only gonna we're gonna use people and things and whatever to to benefit ourselves. Sinful um, construct that we're calling empire. Anytime Jesus demonstrates his authority and power, it is another, he's taking another step into empire and he's taking over that territory. So, this is the only story where Jesus actually goes to Gentiles. In all the other stories in the Gospels, if there are any Gentiles, the Gentiles are coming to him. And this is because Jesus is fulfilling the, the, the intended role of Israel, which is to bring in the Gentiles, but he has to, to the extent that they will allow him to, he has to get the Jews on board first, because this is their purpose. So, if Jesus, though, can establish even a foothold in Gentile territory, this is a sign that God's intentions for his people and the world are on their way to being fulfilled. The foothold he's about to establish is basically, even though he's very calm and gentle and mild-mannered about this, it in, in a way is a punch in the face for the powers of hell because he's delivering not just Gentiles, but Gentiles who are demonstrably under the powers, under the control, not the authority, the control of darkness. These two stories, the storm and the demoniacs, go together and they can't be separated and reordered to highlight an additional message because they are a part of the same story and the same message. <clears throat> and this is good to remember for real life because in real life we often encounter storms. Usually they're metaphorical, but not always. Um, storms that seem to want to hold us back and that are kind of designed as smoke screens to hold back an act of God in kingdom establishing, empire challenging, life changing. So that actually happened before Paul and I came here. And I think it's sort of happening again here a little bit. Because God wants to do something here at Central Baptist Church. So this is a good time to call back to last summer. I don't know how many of you remember last summer at all. But we talked about Jonah for a few weeks last summer. And we talked about the sea one week. And how for the Hebrew mind, the sea, usually the ocean, the Sea of Galilee is more like a large lake. But um, the sea is a metaphor for the Hebrew people of the realm of the dead. It is chaos, it is disorder, it is frightening, it is loss of control. So, this is so crazy. In this situation, Jesus and his disciples are in a boat, in a storm on a lake that is so crazy, it's like the realm of the dead. Right after Jesus said to some guy on the other shore, let the dead bury their own dead. And they end up, on the other side, among the tombs. 
This story is prefiguring the work that Jesus came to do on the cross. Like Jonah, Jesus falls asleep in the boat during a storm while the crew of professionals is rendered helpless before it. Like Jonah, Jesus will eventually have to enter the realm of the dead to save lives. Intriguingly, both Jonah and Jesus in this, in this story are saving the lives of Gentiles. Unlike Jonah, who had to go through all this because of disobedience, Jesus had to go through it because of his obedience to his father. But even though Jesus doesn't have to go through literal hell today, Jesus is about to show that he has authority over it already. In the boat, Jesus is asleep. The disciples are freaking out. Jesus, we're going to die! And Jesus wakes up and he says, you have little faith. Why are you so afraid? D.A. Carson says, whenever little faith is used in Matthew, which is four times, it signifies the failure to see beyond the mere surface of things. It's like Jesus is saying, you still don't get this authority thing, do you? And it's why he commended the centurion's faith, because the centurion was able to see below the surface of things that Jesus had authority. The disciples don't quite get it. And so there's a little bit of a contrast there. And when he says, why are you so afraid? He's basically saying, you still don't. You still don't know who I am. This is a good thing for us to remember, too. The storm can be the worst storm we've ever seen. And Jesus asleep has more authority over our situation than any human authority, any illness, any natural or supernatural force. We do not need to be afraid. Even if we don't see the specific miracle we ask for, even if it takes a little while for the storm to die down, all we need is Jesus in the boat. Or air in the bottle, like Barb's illustration. Jesus does not force control over our circumstances. He has authority over our circumstances. Jesus challenges his disciples' faith and fear before he rebukes the wind and the waves. The storm is still going on, and he says, why are you afraid? They're probably like, hello? Excuse me? Except they probably don't have time to say anything like that. After he challenges their fear and their faith, he rebukes the wind and the waves with a word, and it becomes calm. The men were amazed and asked, what kind of man is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him. But they ain't seen nothing yet. So they end up on this, in this graveyard, and these two guys show up. Here's something weird. Matthew tends to put two characters into gospel stories where the other gospel writers only put one. I looked this up online on a couple different websites. There are people out there that have ideas for why this happens, why Matthew does this. There's probably a reason, because we've already seen that Matthew has lots of reasons for why he tells the story the way that he does. The best reason that I've seen is there were actually two, but then that brings up the question, well, then why do the other gospel writers only record one? 
we don't really need to go there. We don't actually need to know. Probably we can still get something out of this story, but I actually am developing a theory for why there are two demon-possessed men in the story, and we're going to talk about it as if they're two because we're reading Matthew. So the disciples are still marveling about Jesus' authority over the wind and the waves, and they're about to meet something even scarier. There's natural powers, and there's supernatural powers. Two dudes show up. They are under the control of demons, so violent that nobody who enters that region from that direction can get any further into the region. You can't get there from here. The storm on the lake didn't work, so let's keep Jesus out of this Gentile region by sending our most frightening, scary demons to hold him off at the shore. Something interesting here, these demons know all too well that they will eventually be defeated. Because they say, are you here to, to torture us before the appointed time? They already know it's coming. It's kind of bizarre. And because they're in these two guys, the guys now know this too. Here's a, another weird thing about this story. You can't actually tell where the demons end and where the two men begin. Because in the story, Matthew just says they. Is he talking about the men? Is he talking about the demons? This is an extreme illustration of what happens when we try to, oh my gosh, try to achieve power and authority from empire or from any source other than God. Here's something that kind of blew my mind a little bit while I was reading this story. Are these two demon-possessed men a mirror of the two men on the opposite shore who didn't want to follow Jesus because they couldn't get the perks or the control that they were hoping out of him? Maybe not, but given the way that Matthew tends to write, I think it's possible. Here's the thing. These two demon-possessed guys show the... It's not that every person that chooses against demon against Jesus becomes demon-possessed, but they are a picture of the logical conclusion of holding on to our own control and our own power as opposed to saying yes to the freeing authority of Jesus. But the hope in this story is restoration is still possible. The two demonized men, interestingly, are the first to really reveal who Jesus is in the Gospel of Matthew. They say he's the Son of God. The disciples had said, what kind of man is this? And the demons say, Son of God. They know who he is. They, the men, the demons, both, huh? they know a time of torment is coming for them. The men themselves have all but disappeared. At this point, they're mostly bodies, and the demons are the ones that are calling the shots. And this is what happens in empire. Satan, demons, or just empire, our own selfish uh, ambitions and our own selfish ways of doing things, steals identities. We disappear. They make us candidates for destruction just as they are themselves. The demons are going to be tortured. 
if they stayed in the men, the men, the men were already being tortured by having these demons in there. The men are subject to destruction, just like the demons. The demons clearly don't care about the men they've been controlling. They do, however, care about themselves. They want to avoid the coming torment a little longer. So they ask for a reprieve in some pigs. And Jesus is like, okay, go ahead. Jesus doesn't actually answer their question, by the way, about whether he was coming to torment them. We don't know what Jesus would have done if they hadn't said, can we please go into the pigs? But he lets them go into the pigs. They rush the pigs down the hill into the lake, the lake that just a second ago represented the realm of the dead that Jesus calmed down. And the pigs drown. And then the swine herds call the townspeople, and the townspeople come back, and they're so freaked out that Jesus has messed up their economy that they urge him to leave. Parson says, the pig stampede dramatically proves that the former demoniacs had indeed been freed. They were different. The townspeople could see they're not possessed anymore. But, in the light of verses 33 and 34, the loss of the herd of pigs becomes a way of exposing the real values of the people in the vicinity. They prefer pigs to people, swine to the savior. They prefer the status quo of empire, no more money, no more guard humans on the shore of Galilee to keep people out of our neighborhood. Never mind the costs to these two poor men. Never mind the opportunity to know personally the Son of God. We would rather keep things the way we've always done them. Thank you very much. Also, yes, these people are, are Gentiles, but we need to note something. Matthew's writing to a bunch of Jewish people. What do we know about pigs and Jewish people? They're not kosher. Pigs are not kosher. They are unclean animals. Jesus has rid this town of its uncleanness, symbolically through the pigs and genuinely through the demons. We know that later Jesus is going to declare all foods clean. That's not the point of this passage right now. The demons and the unclean pigs representing uncleanness have been thrown into the sea. The two men are free. They're in their right minds. They're ready and able to step into their God-given identities and human authority, which is what we're all designed for, ultimately. They're ready to get back into relationship with other humans. And from the time Jesus stepped into the boat, and symbolically entered the realm of the dead by sleeping through the storm, Jesus has given his disciples, and now us, a real-life preview of what he is soon to do for all humanity, Jew and Gentile, on the cross. Last week we saw that the cleansing of the leper was kind of a hint at the cleansing part of atonement, and this week we're seeing that it's a hint at the freeing from the bondage to the false gods and idolatry, that part of atonement, and I promise you, I did not plan any of this ahead of time. <laughs> All authority belongs to Jesus, but because it's authority and not control, we can reject it. These people in Gadara, except for the demon-possessed guys, 
rejected it. Jesus' authority over scripture, which is his own word, over sickness, over nature, over supernature, he has authority over all of it. And next week we're going to see there's one more thing that he has authority over. What he commands must be obeyed, and yet he still does not impose himself with control over anyone or anything. He does not force the demons or the two men to be tormented before the time. And thank Jesus, these two men get to escape that torment because the demons are gone from them now. He does not stop the demons from destroying the pigs. He doesn't even refuse to leave when the people say, get out of here. He's like, okay. And he goes. He just makes it really clear what the choice is. Empire, which seems stable, which seems prosperous if you can grab the control and the power that you want, which takes advantage of people, which will in turn eventually control the very people who choose it, or kingdom, with its narrow, unsettling way that leads to freedom, identity, authority, by virtue of letting the Jewish Messiah, the Son of God of all creation, get close. What will you choose? We're going into communion, which is another symbol of what Jesus did for us, um, going into the realm of the dead for us on our behalf, suffering and dying, and um, we are going to celebrate that in thanks. So let's pray and sing our communion hymn together. Lord, thank you that you, Lord, thank you that you love us enough to go through the realm of the dead, to go through hell for us, so that we don't have to, so that we can walk in your authority as we follow in your steps. We thank you for this celebration we are about to partake in, we ask that we will be mindful of it, in Jesus' name.